in my first uh, staff position at a local church, I was the director of college ministry and outreach. And part of what I did um, during those early days of being on staff at a local church here on Staten Island was I participated in starting, helping start a Christian club at CSI. Um, I couldn't do it on my own. I had recently graduated from Pace University, so I couldn't be the one to start the club there. You needed a student to start the club, and I happened to know a young man who was going to um, CSI at the time, and he helped, and we started a Christian club there. It was a pretty big deal. I don't know if there was a Christian club there before. Maybe there was, but the fact that there was a Christian club in existence at CSI was a pretty big deal. And we made quite a team together, me and this uh, young man. He was around my age, might have even been a, a year or so older. And he would lead songs of worship, and then I would teach. And we would spend uh, a lot of time together. Uh, we would pray together. We did much praying together. But eventually, not too long after that, maybe like a year later, my role within the local church where I was serving changed. I became the pastor of student ministries, and in God's providence, another local pastor started a group at CSI. But that young man who was leading the songs, he was still there, at least at the beginning. As time went on, I happened to know and would go to the CSI group periodically, and I got word from one of the students there that I needed to talk to this young man because he was questioning his faith. What had happened was, in the background, and there might have been more, of it, more to this, but we ended up speaking together, and I knew a little bit of the background. We had prayed so much for his grandmother. We prayed for her physically, but above all, because we knew that she was very sick, we were praying for her spiritually. We were praying that she would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. She ended up dying, and she did not profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And from my conversation with this young man, he told me that was the impetus for him abandoning the faith. Just kind of came to a point of saying, I just don't think it's real. And we were praying for my grandma. My grandma didn't come around, so I kind of give up on this whole Christianity thing. Now, the questions can come quick and fast when you hear a story like that. Was he a Christian? Was he saved and lost his salvation? Was he never saved to begin with? The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints helps answer that question at least so much as you can in the here and now. A lot of the answer to that question will be found ultimately. Is it a lapse that he lapsed for a time and it was like, what was I doing? And he comes to his senses and comes back and that would be a witness to the fact that God had begun a good work in him and then would complete that work. Or if he never comes back and hasn't come back yet and never comes back, you'll see tonight as we walk through the text of Scripture that the reality, a reality that hurts my heart even thinking about this young man because I cared about him and we were a team and I and I loved him very much, the reality would be that he hadn't come to know Jesus Christ. But we'll see that as we make our way through the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints tonight, to provide a definition as we come to the P in the acronym of TULIP, P standing for the perseverance of the saints, a definition for this doctrine of grace could be as follows. All of whom are recipients of God's saving grace will persevere until the end being preserved by His grace. I'll say that one more time. All of whom are recipients of God's saving grace will persevere to the end, being preserved by His grace. To put it another way, all in whom God begins a good work will cross the finish line into heaven. 
When you think of the P and the acronym TULIP, you think of perseverance of the saints, but there are other um, phrases, other identifications that begin with P that you could use. You could also say preserving grace. You could also say persevering grace. Or you could also say the preservation of the saints. You could use all of those somewhat interchangeably. Now, if someone is not familiar with what the perseverance of the saints means and what this doctrine teaches, uh, they may hear that identification and just jump to a conclusion that is not accurate. It might be like me years ago when um, I first heard of Long Island City because I had to drive um, students there on the way to a, uh, a Christian concert, only to find out that Long Island City is not in Long Island. And we didn't find that out the easy way. We found it out the hard way. We missed the concert, but I did find out Long Island City is not in Long Island, it's in Queens. And if somebody just hears the perseverance of the saints, they might say, okay, this is all about a saint persevering. It's like God began the good work, now it's up to you, saint, to complete the good work. That's not what's meant by this doctrine. The biblical reality is that the saint perseveres because God ultimately preserves. It's the grace that saves that is also the grace that sustains. God is the author and He is the perfecter and the completer of our faith. To use language with respect to Christ in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. The effectual grace, remember we spoke about that a couple of weeks ago, that effectual grace that is effective, it calls us out of darkness and into light, out of spiritual death into spiritual light. That grace is so effectual, so effective, that it doesn't only save you initially, it saves you completely and ultimately. So the saint perseveres ultimately because God preserves Now, we can't tackle all of the misunderstandings that might be um, assumed or happening when somebody hears the words perseverance of the saints, but I will tackle three of them. Misunderstanding number one might be, besides, I guess, what we've already um, discussed, this doctrine related to eternal security means people can live however they want, sinning however they please, and still be saved. Now, sometimes when people hear this, maybe some of you have heard things like this. I know that I have during my Christian life. You don't believe in that once saved, always saved stuff, do you? And sometimes when people hear the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, they'll associate it with eternal security, rightfully so, but then they will make this assumption that that means that somebody is just saying, you know what, God's going to preserve me till the end so I could just live however I want. That would be a great misunderstanding of what the preservation of the saints, preserving grace, the perseverance of the saints means. God's grace does not provide a license for sin. Read Romans 6.1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Of course not. In fact, as I wrote in your notes there, examining one's life, seeing fruit unto godliness, sincere love for the brethren, a trajectory of obedience as opposed to a pattern of rebellion are just some of the ways that a person can have confidence that their calling and election is actually the real thing. So no, it wouldn't be right to say the perseverance of the saints, a.k.a. the preservation of the saints, means you can just live however you want. Misunderstanding number two, this doctrine means that God starts the work of salvation, but it is the believer's responsibility to keep it. 
No, not at all. On the contrary, as Paul noted in Philippians 1.6, we'll come to this verse again later, it was God who began a good work in the Philippian Christians, and He's the one who would bring it to completion on the day of Christ. He knew that the God who saved them would not only ensure that they wouldn't fall away from Him, but that the culmination of their salvation would be realized on the day of Christ. Misunderstanding number three. The doctrine of persevering means that believers will not fall into sin. Maybe some people just have the assumption that believers will just kind of go on this upward trajectory with no dips and they will not fall into um, periods of sin or rebellion. And the Bible clearly teaches that God's people, beloved people of God, can fall into egregious sin. Maybe the best known Old Testament example of that would be David, who not only committed adultery with Bathsheba, but we also know that he conspired to have Uriah murdered on the battlefield. Other examples can quickly come to mind. Think of Peter. Peter's denial of the Lord Jesus Christ before Jesus' crucifixion. Or we think of Peter's denial of the gospel by forsaking table fellowship with the Gentiles when Paul had to withstand him to the face because his behavior brought a misrepresentation of the gospel with it. And that's Peter pre-cross, and that's Peter post-Pentecost. And those are both big deals. Not to mention, if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see the man who is committing sexual morality, the likes of which wasn't even commonly named among the Gentiles when he was having uh, relations with his stepmother. And then he had to be put out of the church. The church needed to remove the leaven from that local assembly. And then when you look at 2 Corinthians, it looks as though this man might have been repentant and needed to be restored to the fellowship. Suffice it to say, when we're talking about saints persevering, we're saying that saints, true sons and daughters of God who have been born again, will not ultimately and lastingly fall away. They may fall into a ditch and they may fall into heinous sin and then hate it and then repent, but they will not ultimately apostatize and fall away from the faith. That's what we mean. So those are just some uh, misunderstandings of this doctrine Now let's begin to walk through some of the ways in which this doctrine can be defended from the Scriptures. Uh, First, I want to call your attention to the biblical connection between election and persevering. Now there's much that could be said with connecting the perseverance of the saints with the other doctrines of grace that we have already considered. I'm honing in right here on the doctrine of election. Just look at some of the verses that we've gone over for the doctrine of election and see the connection between that and perseverance and preservation. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says that God from the beginning chose you, Paul speaking to the Thessalonians, for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. doesn't say that God chose them to give them a chance unto salvation. God chose them for what? For salvation, not just initial salvation, the whole package, that they would be saved upon being uh, justified and that they would ultimately be glorified. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this verse shows that God has not appointed a believer unto wrath, but unto salvation. Thus, a believer must persevere not ultimately incurring the wrath of God's justice. 
right? So if you go back to 2 Thessalonians 2.13, if God chooses a person unto salvation, it necessitates that that one must persevere till the end. Because salvation ultimately is the whole package. Not just justification, but it leads to, and it is tied to, glorification. Thus, a believer must persevere. Romans 9.23. We're picking up mid-thought here in Romans 9.23, but nonetheless, I will, I'll read the verse and then make the point that's pertinent. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. So those vessels of mercy, ones that God shows mercy to, sets His mercy upon in time, they are prepared for glory. So that means they must persevere unto the end and unto being in the presence of God in glory. See, election and perseverance are tied together because God elects individuals unto salvation, appoints them unto that as opposed to wrath. They are prepared for glory. All of that necessitates that they must endure to the end. They must persevere. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. Now, the point I want to call your attention to is that in between justification and glorification, there's perseverance. There's preservation. You look at these verses, you can see very clearly, and is honing in on now in Romans 8.30, no one who is justified doesn't end up being glorified. Every one of those who are predestined, they are called in time. And everyone who is called in time with that effectual calling is justified, and everyone that is justified ends up being glorified. Thus, in between justification and glorification, they persevere being preserved. I think that this is particularly helpful when dealing with objections that people might raise to these texts or other texts, because um, I know early on in my Christian life, Um, people would say things. They would kind of come up with these uh, exception clauses for all the many verses that would talk about your salvation being secure. So, for example, if you were to look in John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29 and so on, you would see that Jesus says that no one can snatch his sheep from his hand, verse 28. And no one can snatch his sheep from his father's hand, verse 29. But then what you might hear from some people is, no, no, no. Yes, that's true. No one can snatch you from their hands, but you can leave their hands. And one of the first things I want to say before I even look at those verses in their context is, don't forget those verses I just showed you. Because that kind of thinking that all of a sudden you could just jump out and you could spoil the plan of God. That's how powerful your free will is. That God could choose you for salvation, but you say no. That God could appoint you unto salvation, not unto wrath, but you could say no. It's not the picture. The picture over and over again is that God chose you for salvation, therefore you will be saved because God is God. And God made you a vessel of mercy and He prepared you for glory and you can't stop that. You wouldn't want to stop that. He's opened your eyes to how great He is. You fell in love with Him. He opened your eyes. You wouldn't want to change that, but you couldn't change that even if you wanted to and you don't want to, but you couldn't change that because He's God. 
So these exceptions that come up are just not there in the scriptures. What you're going to see over and over again is that God tells us in a whole bunch of ways, I've got you, you are secure, I will finish the work that I've started. Over and over again. A quick note, by the way, if we were to look within that context, I just gave you John chapter 10, uh, verses um, 28 and 29. And one of the things that's good for you to know is that when you hear things like that, um, those exceptional kind of rules, like, hey, you can jump out of you know, the hand of the Son or the hand of the Father. Sometimes just looking in the context helps as well. Not only referencing the verses I told you, but looking in the context. Going over to John 10 for a moment, Jesus said, beginning in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's what his sheep do. They follow him. They don't want to jump out of his hands. They love being in his hands. What do his sheep do? They follow him. They love him and they follow him. Verse 28, and I give them eternal life. I don't give them a shot at eternal life. I don't give them temporary life. I give them eternal, unending life. Verse 28 continued. He goes on and he says, and they shall never perish. So now if you create this exceptional clause where it's like, well, yeah, they can kind of jump out of his hands and perish, then you're going right up against the words of Jesus right there. Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Don't you dare bring up some exceptional clause that the word of God does not have. His grip is so tight. And watch, it's reinforced. You just walk through the text a little bit, uh, a little bit more. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me, Connections to John 6 will be there a little bit later on. Is greater than all. And all would include you. And all would include me. I and the Father are one. So when you have those kind of conversations and those things come up, you can go back to those verses on election. And you can dive into the context even as we did right there. Um, Next point in your notes Recall, again, this is going back to our previous lecture and message on irresistible grace. Recall the metaphors of a believer's salvation. One of the metaphors was resurrection. So then, you have to ask, if one of the metaphors that the Bible uses to paint a picture of our salvation is that we were dead and that we were brought to life, you then have to ask the question, does God raise someone from spiritual death to spiritual life only to let them spiritually die again? And I would say the clear answer from the Scriptures is no. To provide one verse where you could provide many, John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in Him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You don't have a picture in the Bible at all of somebody going from death to life, back to death. Maybe back to life. You just don't have that in the Bible. The picture is you are dead and you're brought to life and you are secure by the grace of God. New birth. Remember, that was another metaphor that we saw. That God had granted us new birth. Remember, when you look at John chapter 1, verse 13 and James chapter 1, verse 18, this new birth was not according to the will of the flesh or the will of man but it was according to the will of God. Of His own will, He brought us forth as a kind of first fruit of His creatures. So then you have to ask the question, did God grant us new birth only to let one of His children somehow end up not becoming His child and becoming eternally estranged from His grace? 
And the answer is no. The Bible clearly teaches that whatever is born of God overcomes the world. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, that we've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed. That speaks to the enduring nature of your new life in Christ. This incorruptible seed gave you new life. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, you can't make a practice of sinning because you've been born of God. You can't, that can't just be the trajectory of your life. You will continue to sin in this fallen frame, I know, but you cannot live in obstinate rebellion. You've been born again. Remember a new creation. That was another metaphor that we had seen. So then you have to ask the question, does God make someone a new creation in Christ? Does He prepare good works beforehand for them to walk in? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, only to have them later walk away from Him. So I'm going to make them a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Old things have passed away. All things have become new. I have good works for them to walk in. And I want them to walk in it for a little while and then I know they're going to walk away from me. It's not the picture at all. Such ones not only have good works prepared for them to walk in, but they are vessels of mercy that God has prepared for glory. Romans 9.22 you could ask additional questions. Any examples in the Bible of somebody becoming unjustified? You don't have one. How do you know that? Just look at Romans 8.30. That all who are justified, they end up being glorified. There's nobody who becomes unjustified. God does not say, you are declared acquitted and righteous in my sight, only to later have them become unacquitted and called unrighteous in his sight. You just don't have an example of that. And you have Romans 8.30 that tells you you can't have an example of that. Can the elect be deceived so as to fall away from the truth and believe lies unto apostasy? Can that happen? Can one who is God's elect believe some sort of apostate doctrine and then be turned away from the faith and fall away never to return? If it were possible, yes. But according to Jesus, it's not possible. It can't happen. It doesn't. Even the most convincing of deceptions would not be able to ultimately cause the elect to commit apostasy and fall away and not come back. Matthew 24, 44 is an example. Does the New Testament provide any hints that the Holy Spirit can be taken away from the Christian? And I would say no. Rather, believers are told that they were, quote, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, Ephesians 1.13, and that He is the guarantee or the down payment, the earnest of our inheritance, verse 14, Ephesians 1. So that inheritance that's awaiting you, son or daughter of God, the fact that the Holy Spirit is inside of you is a guarantee that you will enjoy that inheritance one day. Does Jesus provide a category of people who believe but have a kind of pseudo-faith? Yes, He does. In the parable of the soils, where He speaks about that one, that seed that falls upon that, that rocky ground, that shallow ground that has no moisture. Moisture may be representative of the Holy Spirit. Saying that such ones believe for a while. He gives you a category of that. So you know, if you see somebody with a kind of pseudo-faith, a kind of fool's gold faith, and you're like, it looked like they believed for a while. Yes, you got a biblical category for that. Go to Luke chapter 8. Jesus spoke about those individuals. They believe for a while. That kind of faith 
is of a different nature than saving faith. Saving faith endures. It's like real gold. You could put it in water and it's not going to turn like a different color. It will be able to withstand the fiery trials that it goes through. Saving faith is of a different nature than fool's gold, pseudo kind of faith. Then there are statements on preservation. Just look at the way in which the Bible talks about believers being preserved. Right? Jude, verse 1. We saw this in our study of Jude. Christians are identified as those who are called... These are, that's the effectual call that's being spoken of there. Sanctified by God the Father, or as some older manuscripts render it, beloved by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. So it's part of the way that believers are identified. They're identified as preserved ones. They're preserved in and for Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul had great confidence that he wouldn't commit apostasy, that he would cross the finish line, And he knew that that would happen because the Lord would deliver him from every evil work and preserve him for his Father's heavenly kingdom and for the Lord's heavenly kingdom. And I wonder why he says to him, be glory forever and ever. Peter, 1 Peter 1, verse 5, tells believers that they are ones who are kept by the power of God through faith. So what's keeping you? God's power is keeping you. What's the instrumentation that He uses? Well, part of that equation is faith. Faith that is of such a nature that it endures. You are kept, preserved by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You will persevere because you are kept. 2 Timothy 1, verse 12 Paul writes to Timothy saying, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Over and over again, we see pictures, statements of the believers, preservation. Then there's Jesus' intercession. Remember, Jesus told Peter, that Satan had asked to sift him like wheat. But he told Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned, strengthen your brethren. Hebrews 7.25 is another great verse about Jesus being able to save to the uttermost because He ever lives to make intercession for us. As Thomas Watson put it, grace is carried on to perfection by Christ's daily intercession. As the Spirit is at work in the heart, so is Christ at work in heaven. Now when you see that beautiful picture of Christ interceding, one of the ways you know you're going to endure till the end is because Christ is interceding at the right hand of the Father on your behalf. And then you think of the difference between Peter and Judas. You think of the words that Jesus told Peter in Luke chapter 22, verse 32, Simon, Simon, verse 31, Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But even as I just read, I'll read it again, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. This is in stark contrast to what he tells Judas in John 13. Satan enters into Judas Iscariot as they are there in the upper room. And what does Jesus tell Judas? What you do, 
do quickly. You just look at the contrast between Peter and Judas as you go through the Gospel accounts. Peter makes that great confession of faith at Caesarea Philippi when he tells Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus tells him that flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So that's what he says about Peter. You got it. And the reason you got it isn't found in you. It's found in the fact that my Father revealed that to you. But then concerning Judas, what does Jesus say? Jesus says concerning Judas, did I not choose you? The twelve, and one of you is a devil. John chapter 6, verse 70. Jesus, even during His high priestly prayer, called Judas the son of perdition, the son of destruction. John chapter 17, verse 12. Judas's selection and falling away was so that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus loses none that the Father had given Him. John chapter 6, verse 37. But if you look at John chapter 6, Verses 64 and 65, we're told, but there are some of you, Jesus speaking, but there are some of you who do not believe. And watch what John goes on to say after this. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray Him. Verse 65, and He said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to Me unless it has been granted to Him by My Father. So Jesus' intercession is one, not only, one of the distinct differences between Peter and Judas Iscariot. Sovereign election on display and the power of Jesus' priestly intercession on display as well. And as further textual evidence to support perseverance of the saints, we'll go through some verses um, briefly. Uh, One verse from the Old Testament, Jeremiah 32, verse 40. You could look in the surrounding context there. Verse 39, the Lord says that He would give His people one heart and one way. Jeremiah 32, 39. Uh, Verse 40 provides a great paradigm for new covenant salvation. How He would make an everlasting covenant with His people, not turning away from doing them good, and that He would put His fear in them, verse 40, so they will not turn away from Me, the Lord said. So that they will not turn away from Me. They'll keep going. They'll keep persevering. I have in your notes there as well, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21, and, uh, 21 through 23. And you can probably familiar with um, those verses. Those verses deal with those individuals who would say to the Lord on that day, Lord, Lord, and we did all these different things in your name and so on. And remember what Jesus said to these individuals. He called them workers of iniquity. Depart from, he told them to depart from Him, that they were ones who practiced lawlessness. But He also told them, I never knew you. Well, how's that connected to the perseverance of the saints? Because those that are known by Him, in that loving, relational way from before the foundation of the world, those are the ones that God has set His loving grace upon before the foundation of the world. They are the ones who endure to the end. There is a category of people that can look Christian. They can sound Christian. They could do Christian things. They could go to Christian places. They could do all those kind of things. But at the end of the day, they are workers of iniquity. You might not see all the iniquity that they work, but they are workers of iniquity. And Jesus doesn't say, I knew you for a little while and it was great and I don't know what happened. Rather, He tells them, I never knew you. 
You might call me Lord, Lord, but I never knew you. And I think that's important to have that understanding as we consider the doctrine of preservation. Who is it that God preserves? All that are foreknown by Him. In that loving way in which He sets His affection upon individuals. John chapter 6. We've been in John chapter 6 quite a few times in our study of the doctrines of grace. I want you to see the perseverance of the saints here as we look at a few verses together. In verse 67, actually verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. So that's already arguing for, implicitly, perseverance. They're going to come to me, and I'm not going to cast them out. Implication is, they're going to make it till the end. But if you need that reinforced, if that's not enough for you, just keep going on. Look at verse 39. In verse 39, Jesus says, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing. So remember verse 37, He said, All that the Father gives to me, they will come to me. You look at verse 39, it's the will of the Father that He doesn't lose any of those. Therefore, you know they persevere to the end. How do you know that? Because he's preserving them to the end. But if you need that reinforced a little bit more, read verse 40. In verse 40, Jesus says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. You see the assurance of perseverance? Everlasting life, and I'm going to make sure I raise them up in the resurrection of life at the last day. Is it not enough? Go to verse 44. In verse 44, the Lord Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So again, we're hearing about the ones that the Father gives to the Son. And look what Jesus says. And I will raise him up at the last day. Want more? There's more. Verse 54. In verse 54, Jesus says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. All that the Father gives to me, they come to me. I don't cast them out. They make it across the finish line. I raise them up at the last day. I don't lose any that the Father gives to me. They persevere to the end. John chapter 10 Verses 27 through 30. We went through that earlier, so I will skip that for now. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 30. We went through that earlier as well. But I do want to call your attention to a couple of things with Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Romans 8, verse 30 is the verse that says, often referred to as the golden chain of salvation. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What I want to briefly call your attention to with Romans 8.30, having said what I have said about it already, is that if you look in verse 28, we're told that we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who loved him and those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, God's so in control of providence He so directs the steps of His believers, His people, that He causes everything to work together for their good. That implies they persevere. Because if if His directing their steps ultimately led to their apostatizing and their falling off the cliff into perdition, then everything wouldn't work out for their good ultimately. 
Not to mention, according to his sovereign will, verse 29, those are ones he foreknew, lovingly set his affection on before the foundation of the world, and he predetermined, predestined that they would be conformed to the image of his Son. So you have those arguments there as well. It's just, it's all over the Scriptures. He begins this good work and he brings it to completion. You have uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. You can read that on your own, those beautiful verses that remind us that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing, no created thing. Um, And this will be one of those verses sometimes that people will say, that's right, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. You know, famine, tribulation, peril, nakedness, sword, none of those things, things to come, um, angels uh, or demons and and so on. Nothing can separate you from the love of God and Christ, but you can separate yourself. And again, you have to say, wait a minute. First, I would fall under the banner of any created thing. So if you need to be that technical, I fall under that heading. So do you. So I cannot separate myself. But why are we trying to argue that we could somehow exert our human will and our human will is supposedly stronger than the omnipotent God of the universe? When all of the scriptures over and over again don't provide those kind of qualifications. So no, every created thing would include you and me and everyone. It's as, it's, as, it's as though people don't want to be as secure in the love of Christ. He loves you that much, son or daughter of God. You can't run away. You'd end up saying like Peter. I think it's in John 6. Like, where else are we going to go? To whom else can we go? You, you have the words of life. He, he's worked that in your heart. He's awakened you so that you might see Him. You wouldn't want to run, but even if you tried to run, your new heart would say, I don't want to be away from Him. And that's part of His grace in your life. He's holding you so tightly. He won't allow you to be separated from His love. Philippians uh, 1.6 Paul tells the Philippian Christians, being confident of this very thing. The language there is pretty strong. Being persuaded. Being persuaded that this very, of this very thing that He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Note, by the way, who began the good work? God. Right? Flashback to John chapter 1, verse 13. You were born not of the will of the flesh, but of the will of God. Flashback to Romans 9, 16. That election is not according to Him who wills or Him who runs, but God who shows mercy. So He began the good work. He is the author of your faith, to use language from Hebrews 12. And He will certainly bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. How could Paul be so confident of this? He's so confident. His confidence is in God. My opinion would be, if you look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, you get an idea of why he's so confident. He tells the Philippian believers, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For, this is the reason why, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do. That's why he could be confident. I am persuaded, I am confident that he who began a good work in you, he's going completed. How do I know that? Because he's in you, working to will and to do his good pleasure. You may sin, doubtless you will. You may fall into a ditch, a ditch you didn't think you would fall into. But son or daughter of God, you will come out. And your eyes will still be on Christ. And you won't be able to forsake the Lord who never forsakes you. 
The second Thessalonians 3, verse 3, we can go there. There's, there's a lot of verses. For the purposes of time, I'll just call your attention to a couple of other ones. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3, uh, verse 14. 2 Thessalonians 3 talks about God being faithful to guard us and establish us against evil or against the evil one. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14 is another precious text of Scripture um, that helps us to understand the nature of saving faith. How do we know that we are Christ's? Hebrews 3.14 reads, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. One of the ways you know that you're a believer, not the only way, but it's one of the ways, you know that you have become a partaker in Christ if you keep on believing in that gospel that you first believed. That's one of the ways you know that you are a Christian. There's 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. There's Jude chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. I want to call your attention to 1 John 2, 19. John says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Now, one of the reasons why this text is so important is because I think it's a reminder to us that we are to see experience through the lens of Scripture and not Scripture through the lens of experience. Meaning, if you were with somebody for years, served alongside of somebody in ministry, they professed faith in Christ, you sung alongside of them, maybe you even sat under their teaching and they looked like a godly brother, or you were ministering alongside of them and they looked like a godly sister, whatever it might be, and then all of a sudden they fall away from the faith. You're like, well, what do I make of them? You don't see, your, you don't see Scripture through your experience and say, well, they were saved and now they're not saved, therefore I have to now impugn that upon Scripture, impute that upon Scripture, Rather, you do the opposite. You see your experience through the lens of Scripture. If they ultimately fall away and they don't come back, you could say they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. It's a good reminder that you see your experience through the lens of Scripture. But he served the Lord for this many years. I know. That's why we must exert our proper due diligence, knowing that God is preserving us, we have to nonetheless be diligent to make our calling and election sure. We are saved, but we want to examine ourselves. We are preserved, but we want to make sure that we are not careless in our Christian walking. Because doubtless, there are many people who are among believers, and they could be there for a while. Remember the parable of the soils. The parable of the soils doesn't provide you with a specific time frame. I think some people think that's just like, you know, a week or a month or a year. It could be years. And then all of a sudden, the cares and deceitfulness of riches come, persecution comes, and then individuals end up forsaking the faith they once professed. They went out from us, John said, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued. Those who are preserved are ultimately those who persevere. All right, to close, some practical implications of this doctrine, briefly. Is this just head knowledge? It should not be. Again, with what you learn, you want it to be logs that go on the fire of your affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. Such enduring grace 
should fan the flames of our ongoing love and appreciation for our triune God. Think about this. Every moment that you are following Christ, it's because you are preserved by Christ. Every moment that you still believe the Gospel, it's because God gave you saving faith that doesn't expire. There's no expiration date on your saving faith. It continues. So you should praise Him. Just even think about that. The only reason you're a believer right now is because God is continuing to sustain you. He's committed Himself to you. He's plunged you into the body of Christ and you're not going to be ripped out. See the Lord's grace underlying your persevering. I was thinking about that uh, this week. We got the... uh, we got the pull-up bar back out in the house. You know that little pull-up bar that goes in the door frame? And um, Thea loves to do push-ups. They're pull-ups, but she calls them push-ups. And, and one, of the, one of the things that's so precious about that is she, she's pulling up. Like, so if I'm holding her up there, and she'll grip it like this, so she's doing like pull-ups like this, and she's really pulling. But if I don't hold her up, she's going down. But when I'm holding her, she's pulling up and she's making it. And I'm like, an imperfect creaturely analogy of what's happening in our lives. We are called to exert ourselves. We are called to strive to enter into uh, the the narrow gate and so on, the narrow road and, and, and walking in that way and so on. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's because we're being upheld by the grace of God who's working in us both to will and to do His good pleasure. You are what you are by the grace of God. I would say place the proper emphasis not only upon fruit, but upon faith. Because sometimes believers can become so discouraged with their meager fruit. I know, there's so much more you could do. There's so many more people that you could love. But you do want to take inventory of your fruit. Make sure that fruit is there. Do you love Christians? Right? We know we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren, John said. Yeah, you do want to look at your fruit. Fruit of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.11. But don't forget the importance of faith. I mean, I'm amazed at how many times I've spoken to people, particularly in hospitals, when they could be at death's door and they don't seem to care whether or not they place faith in Christ Jesus. If you believe that Jesus is the only way, it's a big deal. It is a big deal. And you're persevering by holding on by the grace of God to that gospel profession. I would remind you, apply the practical means that God has appointed in your persevering. God's preserving you, but He also uses means in that process as well. Humility, prayer, reading the Scriptures, attending corporate worship, heeding scriptural warnings. And maybe the biggest takeaway, maybe the biggest takeaway is you do not need to live in constant fear of falling away. In the days in which we live, and you don't know what's coming down the pike, I mean, a lot of people can start wondering and using their imagination and saying, if this happens, if this comes down the pike, what is going to happen? Am I going to be able to withstand in the evil day? Or am I going to fall away? Well, as a believer, if you have a good understanding of the doctrine of preservation, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, you should live today with a humble assurance that God will keep you tomorrow. That you say, right now, I am trusting and I know I'm not going to be able to preserve myself. Not today, not tomorrow, not however many tomorrows God gives me. But my confidence is in the one who saved me, that he will keep me and that he will preserve me. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father,
Thank You for such amazing grace. Grace that saves and grace that sustains. Oh, how this grace is indeed so amazing. So undeserved, yet so sufficient and so effective and so effectual. Thank You, Heavenly Father, that underlying all of our persevering is Your loving preserving of us. We thank You, Father. We pray that these blessed truths that we have considered tonight may lead us to praise You more and to have greater measures of confidence in Your preserving power in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.